This week, David is giving another in his series of talks about democracy. This one picks up the theme of his new book, Where Power Stops, The Making and Unmaking of Presidents and Prime Ministers. It's a story that runs from Lyndon Johnson to Boris Johnson. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. What is the most influential book for the recent generation of leading politicians in the United States and Britain? The presidents, the prime ministers, the wannabe presidents, the would-be prime ministers. I haven't got a scientific answer to that question, but there's pretty clear anecdotal evidence. Before telling you what the book is, it's probably worth saying that politicians are human beings too, so my guess is they read what everyone reads. Probably Harry Potter is the thing that most of them have read most, the ones who have kids, because it's what we all read. When a book is a bestseller, politicians read it too. When Yuval Harari's Sapiens was being read by everyone, everyone was reading it, including Barack Obama, who said that it made him feel like we're all very insignificant in the grand sweep of time. So if Obama feels that, I think we can all feel that. There are lots of books that have been influential, but maybe politicians who have been influenced by them haven't read them. Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century is probably one of those books that more people have talked about than have read. But there are some books that politicians have not only read, but seem to absolutely love. The books about politics that politicians love, revere, cherish, and want to talk about. And there's one in particular. It's Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. It comes in four volumes. There is a fifth volume to come. The story is not finished yet. It's a race against time whether he's going to finish it because Robert Caro is an old man. He's well into his 80s. And he hasn't yet completed the story of Johnson's presidency and the tragic end, if it was a tragedy, and the story of the Vietnam War. Famously, it's taken Caro slightly longer to write Johnson's life than it took Johnson to live it. But there are four volumes and politicians, leading politicians, love them. Obama loves Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. Bill Clinton loves it. Gordon Brown has said how much he loves those books. William Hague, George Osborne, Michael Gove. I discovered how much politicians love these books on this podcast when we interviewed Michael Howard, the former Conservative Party leader, another would-be Prime Minister, who came pretty close in 2005 when he lost the general election to Tony Blair, it was closer than a lot of people thought it could possibly be. We interviewed him in the early days of this podcast, and it was pretty tough going. He was cold. Uh, he brought something of the night with him into our interview, and I was really struggling to get him to talk about anything. And in slight desperation, because I'd read that, like all the others, he loves Caro's biography of Johnson, I asked him what he liked about it, and he just changed. It was like someone had flipped a switch he suddenly warmed up. He was friendly. He was open. It was like I had asked him about an old friend. He really wanted to talk about those books. So what is it that politicians love about the life of Lyndon Johnson as told by Robert Caro? I think it's three things. First of all, 
these books are a kind of love letter to politics. So they celebrate politics in all of its glory, if it is glory, the backstage stuff, as well as something that we all see all the time, the grind, the graft, the grudges, the vendettas, the revenge served cold, the years and years of work that go in to the things that we eventually see, including the successes. Caro writes about it all, he celebrates it all. And I think in any profession, you would love the books that tell the world how important all the stuff is that you do, including all the stuff that no one sees. No matter how miserable, no matter how dirty, it all matters. Caro kind of loves it too, you can tell. And the politicians love the fact that he loves it. The second reason is that, as told by Robert Caro, Lyndon Johnson's life is a tale of redemption. So Johnson was a truly terrible man. He was a bully. He was cruel. He was capricious. He was corrupt. But at the end of it all, when he became President of the United States, he did amazing things. He brought in civil rights legislation. He initiated the Great Society program that many Americans, and not just American liberals, still value. When you see the arc of his life, all of the bad stuff is leading to something good. We haven't had the finale. We haven't had the disaster of Vietnam. So where it ends at the moment in volume four with the early years of Johnson's presidency, it is a tale of a man overcoming his flaws or putting his flaws to the service of the public good. Those politicians who love Caro's book, they're not as flawed as Lyndon Johnson was. Very few people are. But everyone has character flaws, including all politicians. They know what they are. They know their own weaknesses. To read the story of a man who overcame those weaknesses, maybe even used those weaknesses to achieve great things, is wonderful. And finally, as told by Caro, Johnson's life shows that individual politicians can make a difference. It is about the force of personality. It is about the way in which Johnson, perhaps uniquely by the force of his personality and his will, was able to mould the institutions of American political life to his own ends. So Caro is an incredible chronicler of institutional life too. Part of the reason these books are so great is that they lay bare how Congress works, how the presidency works, how local politics works, how even student politics works in America. But all the way through, you follow Johnson and you follow one man making the difference. And I think for any politician, particularly the ones who want to reach the top, and probably all politicians secretly want to reach the top, the thought that when you get there, you, the individual, can make the difference is the story that you want to hear. So I completely get why politicians love these books. I kind of love them too. They're great books. But I think they've got a fatal flaw at their heart. I think there's something that Caro gets wrong. The moral of his story as he describes it, I don't think, is the moral. And he spells it out in the fourth volume. So volume three, which is called The Master of the Senate, tells how Johnson mastered that institution and bent it to his will. The fourth volume, which describes... Johnson's essentially failed vice presidency under John F. Kennedy and then his miraculous, if that's the word, ascendancy to the presidency when Kennedy was assassinated. It was luck, unless you believe Johnson was involved in the assassination, which is probably a mistake. But when he gets there, he makes the difference. And what Caro says in the introduction to the fourth volume is that his lesson of the life of Johnson 
is power corrupts, but power also reveals. When a politician gets the ultimate power of the top job, the presidency, say the prime ministership in this country, we discover who that person really is, the essential person, the essential character, the values, the things that they truly believe in. So for Caro, what we discover about Johnson when he becomes president is that he was a man of compassion, that underneath the monstrous character traits, there was a genuinely caring human being who did what he did because he wanted to make people's lives better. And he needed to get the power to show that side of himself to the world. I don't believe it. I don't think that that can be right. Because if you read all four volumes, Johnson as president is the same man he was in the Senate, the same man he was back in Texas, the same monster. Throughout Johnson's life, the strong impression you get is of a consistent character for whom the most important thing is not and never is compassion. It's power. Power for its own sake. He wants to dominate. He wants to master other human beings so that he is not mastered by them. And part of his character flaw is a terror that other people might bully him if he doesn't bully them. And he will use whatever weapons are available to him, whatever tools are in his arsenal, to dominate. And when he becomes President of the United States, compassion is not who he really is. Compassion is another tool at his disposal. He decides that if he is going to be a masterful president, he has got to show that he is not just the guy who stumbled into the job because his predecessor got shot. He has to show that he deserves it. And the way to show he deserves it is that he has to do what Kennedy couldn't do. What Kennedy couldn't do was pass civil rights legislation. What Kennedy couldn't do was launch a great society program because Kennedy did not understand how to get legislation through the United States Congress. Johnson does understand that, and he also understands that if he does it, people will come to conclude that he deserves to be president and that the mastery that he displays as president is Johnson's true character. Compassion for Johnson is a tool, not an essence. And I came to the conclusion reading Caro's book, and this is now the theme of my new book, about a whole series of presidents and prime ministers, that Caro's moral is the wrong way round. It's not that when these people reach the top, we discover who they really are. It's not that power reveals the person. It's that the person reveals the nature of the power. So they don't change. We know who they are when they become presidents and prime ministers. You can see who they are often from early in their careers, sometimes from their childhoods, from their university days. Politicians don't really change. And they don't also hide who they really are. It's usually visible from the beginning. But when you follow that person to the top, and when that person gets to the top, what you discover are the limits of the power of the top office, the top job. You get to see what's possible, not who they really are, but what that kind of person can do. So let me give some examples, because I think it applies pretty generally. Theresa May, who I write about in this new book, there was a lot of frustration during the three years while she was prime minister that we never got to find out who she really is. There was a thought that now that she finally had reached the top, we ought to see behind or beyond that mask that she put up in public of the dogged, dutiful, 
persevering, determined, inflexible, unimaginative politician. And that we would discover either her core values, what she really believed about Brexit, what her emotions really were, what her emotional life really was, that there was something hidden behind that political mask. I don't think there was. I think that's who she was. The person she was when she became Prime Minister was the person she was when she ceased to be Prime Minister. She was a dogged, dutiful, unimaginative, determined politician. Almost the last thing she did as Prime Minister was to cry at the end of her very last speech outside Downing Street, just as she was leaving office, she finally broke down. And a lot of commentators said, there's a glimpse of the Theresa May we could have seen. What if she'd showed us that person, the real person, the emotional person? That wasn't her. That was a little glimpse of a part of her. But the real person was the person she was for three years. And what we discovered during Theresa May's prime ministership was not some new fact about her, What we discovered was the limits of what someone like her could do as Prime Minister. That sort of political personality, which was pretty effective when she was Home Secretary, that dogged determination to see things through, her determination to see Brexit through, wasn't enough. That she lacked some of the qualities she would have needed. She needed to be more imaginative. She possibly needed to be more flexible. She may even have needed to be more charming. But she wasn't those things, and there wasn't some essential her that we never got to see. What you see is what you get, and what you get in that case wasn't enough. There were similar complaints made about Gordon Brown's three years as Prime Minister, that we never got to find out who he really was, and that we should find out who he really was, because in a sense that's the point of these incredibly powerful jobs, that we get to see the real person. In Gordon Brown's case, it was almost fueled by Caro's biography of Johnson. So Brown loves those books. Many of Brown's acolytes were readers of those books. And there was a feeling, I don't know if Brown had it, but certainly some of his supporters had it, that he was the person who could be our Lyndon Johnson. Here was the politician of compassion, who had never been allowed to show his true compassion because as Chancellor, he was always fighting Tony Blair. He was fighting institutional battles that never allowed him to come out from behind the mask. And that when he finally got to be Prime Minister, the point of the long struggle, the redemptive tale that would overcome the character flaws that were visible for all to see, was that at the heart of Gordon Brown was this towering, idealistic figure who wanted to build a great society for Britain. But he didn't. And the reason he didn't is that the person who had been revealed during his years of fighting with Blair when he was Chancellor was Gordon Brown, that the politician of compassion the towering imaginative idealist, always went along with the slightly paranoid political operator who never quite dared do the big thing. And there was a real frustration among Gordon Brown's many admirers that his prime ministership was defined by this one act, which seemed like a kind of aberration very early on. He essentially chickened out of a general election that he'd indicated he was seriously considering calling. And he allowed that speculation to get too far advanced so that when he finally decided he didn't want to have a general election, he looked like a coward. And he never quite recovered from that. The financial crisis then intervened and his prime ministership was swallowed up by events. But it's not that that decision not to call a general election blocked us from seeing the real Gordon Brown. That was the real Gordon Brown. That was part and parcel of his personality. There was nothing going to be revealed that somehow that decision obscured 
We know who these people are. And wanting something to come out from behind the mask is wanting usually for something that doesn't exist. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It could be argued that the exception to this, the obvious exception to this is Tony Blair. That he is someone who did reveal his true colours as Prime Minister in a way that wasn't clear beforehand. And again, I think many of the people who admired Tony Blair when he first became Prime Minister, including many of the people who voted for him in his two landslide election victories in 1997 and 2001, were then shocked and disappointed and still are disappointed or worse when they discovered potentially who he really is after 9-11. So there is a feeling with Blair that before 9-11, the popular centrist reforming politician was a kind of sham because what we discovered after 9-11 and then through the Iraq war and beyond was behind that the essential Blair was a neoconservative imperialist warmonger or at least someone who was absolutely committed to the use of military force in his mind to put the world to rights and that somehow we hadn't been able to see that person beforehand because it was hidden and it took an event and it took then the power of a prime ministership to show us who he really was and that he's been that person ever since and in the public's mind particularly for those people who are most disappointed by who he became that's become the essential Blair again I'm not sure that's right I'm not sure he changed and I'm not sure what happened after 9-11 wasn't clearly visible before 9-11 I write about this in my book. I think Blair was always the same person. And I think he was visible as that person long, long before even he became prime minister, when he was shadow home secretary and he gave a speech about the James Bulger killing. He revealed his essential character as a politician, which is he always wanted to see the bigger picture. He always wanted to connect the dots. So he was a kind of pragmatist. He presented himself as a non-ideological politician in many ways. But like many pragmatists, actually what he was after was some kind of holistic conception of politics so that you could find a way to make all the problems connect. Bill Clinton was a bit like that too. Bill Clinton once said that he was looking for the unified field theory of politics, the thing that connects everything. Blair was always searching for that, but for the first half of his prime ministership, the reason he couldn't achieve it is because domestic politics, being a prime minister and trying to govern a country, doesn't work like that. You can't join up all the dots. There are too many institutional barriers. Managing Parliament, dealing with Gordon Brown, dealing with his Chancellor, trying to work out a way to get policy and legislation enacted is not a holistic enterprise. It's piecemeal, it's frustrating, and Blair was not well suited to it. He was always looking for the bigger picture. And what happened after 9-11 was not that the real Blair emerged, the real Blair was there beforehand, but that the power of his office of being prime minister shifted 
to allow him an outlet for that side of his personality. Because in international politics, particularly at a time of war, you can be holistic. You can bypass the institutional checks. You can govern without parliament. You can govern without your cabinet. You can make your relationship with the American president more important than your relationship with your colleagues. A lot of the institutional barriers fall away. And you can make the big, grand, moral case for change and for redemption without being blocked by Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown couldn't stop Blair from doing what he wanted to do in Iraq. What we learned after 9-11 was not who Blair really is. We knew that. What we learned after 9-11 is what prime ministers with that personality can do when the institutional constraints fall away. I write about Blair and Brown. I write about Theresa May. I write about Lyndon Johnson. I write about others too, Obama and Clinton. I write about Margaret Thatcher in this book. She's often held up to be the politician who exemplifies in the British case what maybe Lyndon Johnson does in the American case, the power of personality, the ability of a politician who reaches the top to mould institutions to his or her will. And often it's thought about Margaret Thatcher that when she became Prime Minister, her essential ideological character came through, her determination, her conviction... And that that person, that believer in what we now call Thatcherism, was able, by force of personality, to mould a country, or at least some of a country, and some of an era in her image. Again, I'm not sure that actually captures the kind of politician that she was, or the kind of prime minister that she was. In each of the studies I have in this book, I try and talk about the whole life, including childhood, education entry into politics, how these politicians first made their way in politics. And in Thatcher's case, she doesn't feel early in her career any different than she felt as Prime Minister. She doesn't come across as someone who was hiding anything. She was consistently a conviction politician, but she was also consistently a pragmatist. She was actually very different from Tony Blair. And I think when you compare Blair and Thatcher, you do learn not so much about who they were, but something about what you can do as Prime Minister and what kind of personality type suits that office. I would say the difference between Thatcher and Blair was that Thatcher never thought it all had to join up. So she may have been, in some sense, more ideological. I'm not sure she had stronger convictions than he did, and I think he had stronger moral convictions than she did. The difference between her and Blair, and indeed her and Brown, is that, unlike Brown, she was willing to risk it all, and Blair was willing to risk it all. But she didn't think that it always had to add up. So Thatcher fought a series of all-or-nothing struggles against mortal enemies. The Falklands War, the miners' strike against the National Union of Mine Workers, her struggle against the IRA, which ran through her premiership and very, very nearly did literally kill her. Existential struggles in which everything was on the line for her, but they weren't all part of one bigger, wider struggle. In each of these struggles, though she was willing to risk everything, she was also willing to compromise and she was willing pragmatically to do things that didn't add up. She won each of them in part because she didn't just stick to her convictions. She compromised on them. She changed, she chopped, she changed. That personality type, more than her essential convictions, her essential values, who she really was, that's what suited the office of Prime Minister. 
that's what made her such a powerful prime minister, the combination of pragmatism and being willing to go all in. In this book, I have an image to try and describe what it is that I'm doing, which is, I say that when you find out who these people are, and if you assume that they don't really change and nothing is going to be revealed when they reach the top, you then can follow them into the highest office, the presidency, prime ministership, into the Oval Office, into Downing Street. And their personalities act as a kind of barium dye, like with an X-ray, where the dye reveals all of the little blockages and contours and the shapes of the corridors of power. You can follow the personality into the corridors of power and you can see what moves and what doesn't, which doors open, which doors close. What you get to see is the character of the office, not the character of the person. The office doesn't show you the limitations of these people. These people show you the limitations of being president or prime minister. Which then leads to, I guess, the big question, and it's the question I talk about at the end of my book. How are we meant to think about the two who are president and prime minister now? Trump and then Lyndon Johnson's namesake, but somewhat different politician, Boris. Are Trump and Boris Johnson part of this pattern? I think it's pretty clear by now that we haven't found out something about Trump that we didn't know before, some essential part of his character. Nothing was hidden waiting to be revealed. He is absolutely the same person he was before it was even conceivable that he might be president of the United States. He is that narcissist. He is that fantasist. He is that showman. Trump on Twitter pre-presidency is President Trump on Twitter. Trump on The Apprentice is the same person as Trump in the Oval Office. There's nothing left to be revealed about Donald Trump. So I think the thought, and there was a thought when he became president because it was such a bizarre turn of events, that something would have to change. We would have to discover something about this man, something about achieving this extraordinary office would force him into some essential character revelation. That turns out to be an illusion. Nothing about Donald Trump, I think, at this point is ever going to change. And we are learning, because that man is now president, a lot, not about him, but about the presidency. Much more has been revealed about the institution than has been revealed about the man, including the limits of the institution, but also some of the limits that we thought were there and aren't there. What Trump has managed to do and what he has managed to ignore as president, I think for many people, is the genuine revelation of his presidency. The ways in which he can ignore and overcome what had previously been thought to be the constraints of the office. But I still think that there's probably a difference between Trump and all of the other people that I write about in my book, going back to Lyndon Johnson, and I'm sure you could go back well before that. But the ones that I write about, from Johnson through to May, passing through people like Thatcher, Brown and Blair, Clinton, Obama, they were all testing the limits of the power of the ultimate office of their nations. They were all trying to find out what was possible, but they all accepted that there were limits. They were probing, they were pushing, they were frustrated, they were often angry, they felt betrayed. 
But they never for a moment thought that the limits weren't real. The difference with Trump is that that personality type seems to be able, genuinely, insofar as one can ever know what anyone genuinely thinks, to believe that the limits are not real, to think that the constraints of office are a kind of illusion. And so I don't think that the barium die image really works for Trump. It's not like he's illuminating the corridors of power, that we follow his personality through and we get to see how the presidency really works. It's almost as though he doesn't himself believe there is an answer to the question how the presidency really works because the presidency works the way he imagines it should work. He's more like an acid. He's more like sulfuric acid than he is like a dye. He's burning his way through the institution. He's burning his way through the corridors of power. And a lot of things that were thought to be solid turn out to be easily dissolved. That acid could easily leave the office of president fundamentally changed when he leaves it. It could be a different institution because there might not be that much left of the constraints that shaped the presidency of almost all, maybe all, of his modern predecessors. We don't know. I mean, a lot will depend on what happens next. But it's at least possible in his case, unlike in the case of anyone who's come before in recent memory, that what he's done is not illuminate or reveal, but burn a hole in the office that he now occupies. Johnson, Boris, not Lyndon, is different. So he's often compared to Trump. Trump compares him to Trump. Trump calls him Britain Trump. He's a very different kind of politician from Donald Trump, not least because he is a politician. He's a career politician. He's always sought this job. I don't think Trump has always sought the presidency. I think he stumbled into it. Johnson also has a different, very different personality type from Donald Trump, I think. Boris Johnson is clearly capable of shame. He's he's not just embarrassable, it's quite easy to picture him as embarrassed because he's often been embarrassed by his own actions, not least because as a career politician he's been sacked and he's uh, come a cropper many times and had to fight his way back. It's almost impossible, it's almost literally impossible to imagine what an embarrassed Donald Trump would look like because it's not something that he can do, it's just not a look he has. He is shameless. Boris Johnson is not shameless. Boris Johnson can feel shame like the rest of us. Boris Johnson occasionally has hinted that he is comfortable with the Trump comparison, but he much prefers other comparisons. He would like to be thought of as Churchill. Uh, he's written a book about Churchill. It's often described as a famously bad book. Uh, I haven't read it, so I have no idea. It might be great. I don't think when Churchill became Prime Minister in 1940, we discovered who the real Churchill was. We knew who the real Churchill was in 1940. What we discovered is what a man like that could do as Prime Minister. We discovered what a Prime Ministership could be. But I don't think Johnson is Churchill. He's recently said that his political hero is Pericles of Athens, the great celebrator of ancient Athenian democracy, the great champion of the democratic spirit. Though there is an irony there, and Johnson will be well aware of it. Johnson is a classicist. He will know that Pericles' great speech, his funeral oration, as, as 
laid out by Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War, the great celebration of Athenian democracy, is also deeply ironic because, as Thucydides said, when Pericles was in charge, Athens was a democracy in name only. It was really the rule of the first man. And there is an enduring truth there that I think the politicians who preach loudest about the virtues of democracy are often the ones who are celebrating democracy in order to subvert it. So maybe Johnson is Pericles. He has often wanted to be compared to Margaret Thatcher, and I think he would still be happy to be compared to Margaret Thatcher if his prime ministership turns out to have the power and longevity of hers. He will leave it a very happy man. And I think he possibly is quite like Margaret Thatcher, in that he also seems to be a politician who is not holistic. He doesn't think it all has to add up. He's often criticised for being extremely inconsistent. He chops and changes, including on what are meant to be his core convictions. But he is willing to go all in. He seems to be willing to go all in. He is willing to fight all or nothing struggles without believing that all the all or nothing struggles have to add up. And it's at least possible that that is the personality type that particularly suits the office of Prime Minister. And if it is, we will discover it soon enough. But there is one thing I think that Johnson does have in common with Trump, and that's that he is also a kind of acid, more than he is the barium dye revealing the secret passages in the corridors of power. He is behaving like someone, though he has shame and embarrassment, who doesn't necessarily recognise the limits of the office that he holds, that he's willing, potentially, to treat them as though they weren't there, to make claims and make demands and make threats, including the threat to suspend Parliament, that would have seemed outside the bounds of what's possible as a Prime Minister, as a democratically elected Prime Minister, though he hasn't been elected democratically by the people yet, if he ever will be. But he's willing to talk and behave as though not he's testing those limits, but he's simply ignoring them, that they aren't there. And as with Trump, I don't think we know yet what will be left when this process is over. But we will find out, and in Johnson's case, we'll probably find out sooner rather than later. So I think with Johnson, to go back to where I started, there is a misapprehension, as there was with May, as there was with Brown, as there has been with every president and prime minister in recent memory, that we're going to find out something about them now that they've made it to the top that we don't know already. We're going to find out who the real Boris Johnson is. No, we're not. We know who the real Boris Johnson is. The real Boris Johnson is the man who wrote two telegraph columns, one for leaving the European Union and one for remaining in the European Union, each of them serviceable, depending on which way he was going to jump. And then when he decided to jump for Brexit, he was all in. That's the real Boris Johnson. That's the Prime Minister that we've got. He's not going to change. He hasn't got some inner core that we haven't seen yet. What we are going to discover is not who he really is, what we are going to discover is what a Prime Minister can and cannot do. Where Power Stops is out now. Talking Politics listeners can get 20% off with the code TP20 if you visit profilebooks.com forward slash where power stops. 
The audiobook is also now available, read by David, from wherever you usually get your audiobooks. If you like this podcast, we think you'll really enjoy it. We have one more guide in our summer series coming out this weekend, The Talking Politics Guide to Marriage. Then Helen returns and we'll be back next week to the latest twists and turns of Brexit and everything else. Please join us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.